This episode of My Feminine Heart was filmed on location at Rise Beauty Company, a transgender-friendly spa and salon in York, Pennsylvania. Welcome back to My Feminine Heart. I'm your host, Cassandra Storm, and I am joined today by the incredible trans advocate, Joanne Carroll, who's the most amazing woman anybody could meet. I love her so much. And we are here to talk about so many things. She's had a really incredible life journey. Uh, currently, you can find her as the president executive director, owner, no, that's okay. secretary, everything no. <laughs> of Trans Advocacy PA. Mm -hmm. And uh, Joanne, welcome to the show. We're so excited to well, have thank you. you. Obviously, I'm tickled to death to be here with you. Oh, thank you so much for taking your time today. No, no problem. So, um, you know, we've known each other for years and your story of your life has been so incredible. I love to walk people through the journey of you. Um, where were you born? I was born in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, in the same hospital where my mother was, so that was kind of convenient. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yep, so uh, your journey from Canada, how did you come down here? Well, let's, let's not quite move it that fast. Uh, while I was still in Canada, um, when I was about four or five, we were at my grandmother's house for a Christmas celebration, and my girl cousins were all there, and they're Mary Janes and pinafores, and they were getting gifts like dolls and tea sets and I was dressed in a vest and bow tie and brogans and long pants with suspenders yeah. and I was getting cannons and tractors and as much as a four-year-old mind can process that didn't make any sense to me because I wanted what they had I wanted to look like they looked because inside I didn't feel any different than they were yeah so that's the earliest part so growing up then in Calgary Alberta Canada and uh, in 1947 we came to the United States but prior to that my only f real friends were two little other girls in the neighborhood, Reva and Carolyn. Reva and Carolyn, and we were inseparable. We walked to school together hand in hand. We played dolls. We played tea party. Uh, there were little boys in the neighborhood, but we didn't hang out with those smelly little urchins because they did stupid things like build caves and get dirty. Yeah. And that wasn't anything I wanted to do. So when we came to the United States, that was rather traumatic because I had to leave my bare best friends behind. Was there ever any talk? Uh, from your parents or family to you about the fact that your best friends were girls and that you always wanted to play with girl things? Well, I asked for a doll when I was three, and I got mm -hmm. a teddy bear instead. Um, and I had to make do. Um, but I didn't fuss about it. I grew up in a very religious family, mm -hmm. and so I mean, we didn't talk about anything, even got close to sex or anything like that. So it would have been impossible almost for me to have that conversation way back when. And it was the 40s. And I didn't know it. I didn't know how to tell anybody anyway. I just knew there was something inside that I just didn't understand. Um, and uh, later, I, I've come to know now, a psychiatrist now use the term unthought known. There's something there that you can't relate to. You just know it's there, but you don't have the language or the, or the ability to explain it. Unthought known. Unthought known. That's the first I've heard of that. That's I know. I, I came across it a couple of months ago and I went, wow. Yeah, that's incredible. That, that's really it. Okay, so you had an unthought known. Unthought known. I knew there was something, but I didn't know how to describe it. I didn't even know how to talk about it. The kids today have a little bit of an advantage because so much of what we experience as trans people is in the day-to-day -day parlance. People know that. They hear these conversations. And so the kids nowadays grow up knowing that there's something there, and they know how to describe it. So yeah. 
And I think parents are more aware too. They're yes. aware that yes. this is out there. Yes. Whereas, you know, your mother probably had oh, no. no idea. They had no idea. There was no such thing. It wasn't until 1952 when Christine Jorgensen came out back from Denmark as, as Christine after going over there as George that anybody knew there was such a thing. And of course, back then they called it transsexual, which is a terrible term because it conflates sex and gender. But that hit the United States big time. It was, at the time, it was a bigger story than Caitlyn Jenner. And then it was when she came back from Denmark, I went, oh, okay, I guess there is something to this after all. So how old were you when that happened? Twelve. Twelve. Yeah. I was born in 1940. That means I'm, I'll am i be 79 next month. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So you were 12. You saw this story. And was this still an unthought known? Or no, at that time, I was able to put some language to it. I still wasn't courageous enough to exp- try to tell anybody about that because um, that just in my family, as strict as it was religiously, it just wouldn't have gone over very well. Did you dress in private? No. No, not then. You know, a few years later, obviously, I would, when mom and dad were gone, I'd make a foray into mom's closet and, and do that, as most kids that, that deal with this do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> jokingly, later on in life, she asked me, one time she says, Joanne, why do you have so many shoes? I said, well, I remember what your closet looked like, Mom. She says, you knew how much was in my closet? I said, oh, d- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so we came to the U.S. in 47, and this was coming down from Canada. And, of course, I was dealing with things like oat and a boot. Yeah. And, and what better way to make yourself another than how you talk and then being not very athletic and being a little bit more sissified than most boys. Mm-hmm. And I hate to use that term because that's really a pejorative, but um, being not the most macho little kid. Yeah. I was picked on and bullied unmercifully. It was just horrible. I hated my life growing up. And uh, it wasn't until I got to about mid, um, middle school age that I realized that I would have to become a really good actor if I was going to survive. And I, I went over the top. So you, you became very macho. I tried to be the most macho little person on the block. Um, if you saw the movie Grease with the black leather jackets and the comb back, ducktail hairdos, yep. that's, that was me. And those were the guys I hung out with. And so they became my peeps, which meant that if you messed with me, you messed with them. And so I, they had my back and I was protected. Yeah, so you weren't a gang. <laughs> well, not really. We just hung out together. Just a group of hoodlums hanging out in leather jackets with slick back little hair. Little punks on the corner having a cigarette and, and whistling at girls. You know? Yeah, yeah. so we call that a gang. <laughs> okay. But we didn't do um, gang thing. We didn't go knocking over liquor stores. Come on. <laughs> okay. All right, so you had your, your very yeah, law-abiding peeps. peeps. I had my law-abiding peeps, yeah. yeah. And so then after school, what, where did your journey take you? Um, went home. And, uh, back to your parents' home. Back to living, my parents' home. Leaving. Yeah. Okay. Because if it's all, and all the time growing up, my safety place was home with my mom. Um, not that she understood who I was, but she did understand that obviously I didn't want to be bullied. And so that became a very safe space. All of the girl skills I now use, I learned being at home with mom, how to, how to take care of a house, how to cook, how to iron, how to wash clothes. All those skills. She tried to teach me how to knit and crochet, but I have ADHD, and that didn't work at all. So, <laughs> but, but all the other girl skills I needed to function as a female, I learned those with being at home with mom. Which you have taught me. You've literally come to my home and taught me how to can. Well, like, I did fruits, that, yes. Yeah. <laughs> fruits and veggies from my garden. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, that. So, um, 
<clears throat> so I learned all those things with her, and it was safe there. So when I, was, when I wasn't with my peeps, it was safer just to be home. Yeah. And there were kids in the neighborhood and everything there, but you know, I still wasn't comfortable dealing with, interacting with other kids, because um, I couldn't relate. Yeah. Just couldn't relate. Because obviously I would just as soon watch a soap opera and, and, or read a romance novel as I would doing anything else, and that just wasn't acceptable behavior. So I collected comic books and lived in a fantasy world, basically. Now, how long did you live at home? I, was, I stayed at home until I was uh, out of high school and after a half year of college and then joined the Air Force. Um, and there's a pretty simple reason for joining the Air Force, and that is I didn't want to get dirty or wet. And if you're <laughs> in the Army or the Marines, you get dirty. And if you're in the Navy, you get wet. And I didn't want to do either of those things, so I joined the Air Force. And... Uh, Managed to suffer my way through basic training and all that kind of stuff, and then got assigned back close to home, uh, 160 miles north of St. Paul, up in Duluth, Minnesota. Yeah. Um, and that was good, and it was bad. My parents wanted me home every weekend, and I was developing friendships up there. And then had found a girlfriend, and then ultimately we ended up getting married. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so that was when I was 21 I got married because I thought that's what you're supposed to do. What made you go into the military? Was it still part of that search for machoism? Well, or? I would say yes and no, but more so because of economics. Um, I graduated from high school in 1958, and there, was so, so, there were so many guys that had come back from Korea in 1954, 55, mm -hmm. that were moved into the job market. There wasn't much available. And I'm not about to say that, that being a grocery store clerk is a bad thing, because for some people that works out. But that's all that was available to me. Yeah. And that didn't sound like something a kid out of high school wanted to do as, as a career opportunity. So basically joining the Air Force to get my education. I'd gone through half year of college and gotten sick at the end and ran out of money and couldn't go on. So going to join the Air Force for the educational benefits made sense. So, and what better way to kind of be in another form of denial than be in the military yeah. as a male you know You're surrounded by all that testosterone surrounded by all that toxic masculinity yeah. now how long were you in the military 20 years in one day um, and through two marriages uh, well actually not really i'd got divorced before this for, before i retired my first ex turned out to be happy i have a problem with alcohol she drank a case six pack of beer and a half a bottle of jack daniels every night and that was more than i could handle she was sober when I was gone, so I mean, she took care of the kids okay, but I was her crutch. You know, she could let her hair down and be an idiot when I was home. So, and how often were you gone? I know that you were deployed. Well, I was very yeah, but actually on overseas tours, I was only gone separately once, and that was in Southeast Asia, and uh, I was in uh, an air commando in what is now known as Special Operations. Uh, working in uh, counterinsurgency and, and uh, civic action. And what better way to prove how macho you are than being in, a, in that kind of a career area. Yeah. Um, so I was in Thailand for, uh, and Vietnam for a year and uh, came back and the marriage lasted a few more years and uh, um, we ended up, ended up getting divorced. Uh, I had two daughters with that marriage um, and I'm still close to them by the way. Mm -hmm. um, and then after I retired, I went to school at Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado, because uh, my last duty assignment was the Air Force Academy. Mm -hmm. And 
went to Fort Lewis College and majored in political science. And On the GI Bill. Uh, yeah, because I had the GI Bill available. And so I did that and then met this woman there and uh, thought, oh, you know, I just might have to meet the right person and then all this other stuff will be gone. Because so you were still struggling in Oh my God, yes. Yeah. Um, and I'll come back to the earlier part of my story here in a little bit, but um, I just felt that, you know, and it's part of the denial process. You know, I just thought, well, I just gotta meet the right woman and it'll be okay, and it wasn't. Yeah. But my struggle was, was, was accentuated by a couple of things. Number one, growing up in a very strong family who was burst in, in faith. Um, uh, for some people that may watch this podcast, the terminology may mean something. I accepted Christ as Savior. When I was 10, I was baptized in 12, and Daddy molested me when I was 13. And coupling what he did in his hypocrisy along with all this stuff that I was being told that God was a God of love and what I was dealing with internally, when I coupled what I was dealing with with his hypocrisy, it made me probably at best an agnostic um, and basically in some ways yelled at God for about a better part of 50 years saying, how can you possibly think I'm going to accept you as a loving being if I've got to deal with all this junk? And took a few things to make me realize that he wasn't the problem I was. Um, I mean, he your father, he God. God was my problem. Yeah. There wasn't any reason I couldn't be authentic. Now, the only reason I couldn't be authentic is I wasn't accepting myself. Yeah. So, so you spent close to 50 years agnostic. Pretty much yelling at God every other day. And when I wasn't yelling at him, I was praying to him saying, hey, make this go away or fix it. I'll take either choice. And nothing ever happened because that wasn't the way it was supposed to be. I had to accept, learn to accept myself. And, and that came um, at the, uh, I, I was already on hormone therapy because I was already starting to come to grips with myself. Wait, so when did this start? When did your hormone therapy start? 97. So you would have been doing the math, it's like 57? Yeah. So it was not until 50, you were 57 years old yeah. that you started hormone therapy. Yeah, and I had seen a, uh, a counselor uh, who finally, after a couple of sessions of counseling, said, okay, yeah, you can go ahead and start hormone therapy. And that was an exciting moment. <laughs> but I still hadn't accepted myself fully. Um, and. Uh, I accepted a job in Texas because my ex, well, I'm getting way ahead of myself. Um, That's okay. You've lived a very long life. There's a lot in here. Yeah. Um, after I retired from the military, um, I got a job. Well, while I was going to college, I got a job working in a hotel mm-hmm. uh, doing uh, the night shift so I could do the night shift and then go to school daytime. So like hospitality management. Yeah. 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 Well, I was, what's that noise? Nothing, we're good. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought maybe our time had run out. Uh, anyway. Um, yeah, we're done. Interview's over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was easy. Yeah. Um, no, um, I was doing a night shift in a hotel, and, and uh, um, the, there was a girl that was uh, working as the uh, night hostess slash bartender in the hotel, and uh, we just started having conversations. And... Uh, you know, things happened, and it started to feel like, well, maybe I just need to have the right woman in my life, and everything will be okay. And uh, that didn't work. Uh, 
ultimately we ended up getting divorced too, but we're getting way ahead of the story. Um, so in 97, I started hormone therapy. Um, and uh, in 95, 96, uh, I had been at a, managing a hotel in Great Falls, Montana, and had moved to Pocatello, Idaho to manage another hotel. And uh, while there is when I started really coming to grips with myself. I'd already started hormones while I was there in 97. And I finally decided I just had to come out and I had to let everybody know. And so I told my ex. And uh, at first he was pretty accepting um, because she'd been in a very sexually abusive first marriage. Yeah. And so she thought our inability to relate to each other sexually as fully as maybe we should was on on her. So when I told her, it was like, whew, the pressure came off of her. Oh, that's because, wonderful. Which was good for her, but about yeah. three days into that, she decided, oh, wait a minute, if we stay together, people are going to think I'm a lesbian. I don't know, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. Oh, no. So then she fled to, uh, to a friend in Texas and ultimately found a home and bought down, a home down there and then kept pressing me to come, come there. And so finally I uh, resigned the job in, in Idaho and found a job in central Texas. And uh, we lived there, and her idea of, us getting together to try to work things out was to put me in an internet-free zone, meaning she just assumed that everything that I was picking up about transgender was off the internet. So she, she was just going to cut you off from the internet? Yeah, so anytime I fired up my computer, she was like, what are you doing? You know, over the top of me, wondering what's going on. I said, well, I'm doing stuff for work because I had to work from home because of the job I had. And uh, so it was horrible. It was like I was suffocating. And the job ended, um, and uh, I went on a job search, you know, nationwide through the internet and through other sources. And I thought, well, I had good friends up in Denver. Let me go see what's going on up there. So I went up for the about a weekend. And on the way back, uh, and this is my return to faith part of my story. Um, I was on Highway 287. Highway 287, if anybody knows it, starts way up in uh, the Canadian border in Montana and runs all the way intersecting the western part of the United States and comes down through um, Montana into, I think, Wyoming, down through, finally ends up down in the Gulf of Mexico in mm -hmm. Texas. And so I was on 287 coming out of Denver and was near Amarillo, Texas. And there's really not much around Amarillo, Texas. There's sagebrush and there's mesquite, and that's about it. Yeah. So I had just stopped at a rest stop and gone to uh, relieve myself and bought a fresh soda and somewhere near Amarillo, I pulled into a rest stop. And I was dumbfounded. I couldn't figure out, what in the heck am I doing here? And something came over me, and all of a sudden I said, God, if you're listening to me, and if there's still room in your family, I'd like to come back because you're not the problem I am. I'm the one in my own way. And this just hit you at a Boom, random out of, rest stop. out of nowhere at this rest stop. But here's the other part of the story. I drove up and down Highway 287 five more times and never found the rest stop. Really? Really. And about a number of months ago, I was getting ready to do a presentation, and this was going to be part of that story. And I started visualizing what that rest stop looked like. And there was all these huge trees, like big cottonwoods. Mm -hmm. Honey, there ain't no such trees on <laughs> near Amarillo, Texas. <laughs> so that even made the it made, you know even you know blew my mind even more. Um, and so it was just one of those things that helped me get back to faith, and I realized that God wasn't the problem I was. 
yeah. uh, he could love me. Uh, there was no doubt in my mind that that was the case. And it's that an, made such a difference for me. It's amazing to me how long, you know, half a century that you lived without God. Uh, because ever since I have known you, you have been a spiritual leader, uh, especially for the trans community. Yeah. You, um, you're a huge participant in your church. I know you're there every Sunday. You have led uh, seminars at the Keystone Conference on, you know, being trans and religion and the Bible and mm -hmm. scripture. And not just that, at one of the, that the first church moment I went to in Lancaster, um, I was involved in ministry for 11 years. Uh, I, I led a divorce and separation recovery program for 11 years, 49 weeks a year. Wow. <clears throat> and then was part of a, a faith-based 12-step program for people coming out of alcohol and drug addiction and was part of their women's ministry in that church. So, I mean, I was absolutely enmeshed in there. Um, I would tell you, though, at that point I was living in stealth. Nobody knew that I was trans. I was just living my best life as the female I knew I was. And, if anybody knew, they were polite enough to keep their mouth shut, and I was certainly not going to challenge anybody's biblical worldview by saying, hey, I'm trans, hi, how are you, you know, one of those things. So, but it was a good thing because it helped me grow my faith during that time period. And then when my mom uh, passed in 20, and we'll go back to mom because there's fun parts of the story there. Yeah, one of my favorite <laughs> stories is about your mother. Um, but when she passed in 2010, I decided, okay, I have a voice. I need to use it for this community. And that's when my advocacy began was in 2010 after wow. she passed. So I've been trying to advocate on behalf of the trans community for the last nine years. And how well we do downstream will tell you whether we've been effective or not. But to come back to mom, yeah. uh, shortly after coming out to my second ex, um, Things were starting to physically change a little bit. My face was feminizing a little bit, and my what little body hair I had went away. And uh, uh, at this point in your life, how long would you say you had been on the hormone replacement? Therapy? Two years, probably, or a little more. Okay. And uh, my ex said, "You know, you need to talk to your mom. She thinks you're going through something like male menopause." And I said, okay well it's kind of like that but not quite <laughs> yeah um so i went and talked to mom and i told her my whole story i went all the way back to my first memories and when i got all done she said oh honey why didn't you tell me about this before and i went mom you don't understand there's guilt attached to this and she said but babe why would you feel guilty about something obviously you're born with wow. and i lost it completely i mean it just and I how was, how old was your mother at this time oh my goodness that would have been what 90 let me think. That was probably 97, so she was probably right at about 90. Wow. Yeah, and a very strong Baptist woman. Born at, like, the turn of the century. Yeah, not, yeah. she was born in 1908. Yeah. So um, when she passed away, it was 20 hours short of her 102nd birthday. Yeah, that's some amazing genes. I know. So yes, good obviously. Good genetics and a lot of light. What can I say? <laughs> yeah. But anyhow... Um, so I told her, and she accepted me so readily. And a few months later, I asked her, I said, Mom, how could, how could you accept this so quickly? She says, you're my child. I'm, it's my job to love you no matter what. I feel like what you just shared is the dream story for so many people. I'm blessed. That's, that's I'll tell what you what, I'm, I, I can't say anything else but to say I'm totally blessed. Yeah. Um, and every way, shape, and form, I have, it's been a charmed life in some ways from the time I, I uh, addressed my authenticity 
everything has just fallen in place. And I have to give God the credit for that because if it hadn't been that he had been part of my life through that, I don't think I would have actually pulled through. Because leading up to that point, I'd tried suicide four times. Four times? Yeah. At what points in your life? How old were you at the different times? Oh, it was all within the, in the 90s. Because of the level of frustration was getting so much. Three times I ended up pulling the last minute away from a bridge abutment. And the fourth time I took a 357 out of my mouth. 357 Magnum. Um, and my dog saved my life then because he looked up and said, Mommy, what are you doing? Oh. So, um, yeah. So. And I know that you, you this is something that, that you share. You even have a, you have a mark for it. Yep, you have your tattoo. <laughs> yeah, with my, with my semicolon. Yeah. Um, yeah, and of course, it's pretty typical because 41% of the community, trans community, either com- commits to or uh, attempts suicide. Yeah, and that's something that I would love to help. And, to and children prevent. who are unaccepted by their parents have a 50% level of, of suicide. Yeah, that's heartbreaking. And that's, that's enough to say, hey, wait a minute, people. Get your head out of your butt. Let's fix this. But anyway, um, some more fun stories about Mother. She was so special. She loved her daughter and didn't mind telling people how much she loved her daughter. Um, and uh, she never screwed up on her pronouns or my name. I did more than she ever did. Really? <laughs> For real. Uh, well, I mean, which was once on both accounts. Mm-hmm. But that's still more than she did. <laughs> but anyhow, um, when I transitioned, I transitioned, went full-time in uh, Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. Nobody in Pennsylvania, except one person so far, has ever heard of Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. Yeah, no, And it's way down in the southwest corner, about 50 miles from the uh, Wyoming line, about 200 miles uh, northeast of Denver. Yeah, I'd say that's the heart of cowboy country. Oh, my God. All it was was uh, uh, rednecks and sugar beets. Well, even you yourself, weren't you a rodeo cowboy? Well, yeah, that one point. We can come back to that part. (laughs) No, I wasn't a cowboy. I just owned a bull riding rodeo company. So there's a whole lot of difference. I never rode. Um, yeah, you just owned the bull. Honey, I'm a girl again. inside. I'm scared. Of, I'm scared of stuff. Okay. <laughs> you Come. also went into the Air Force too, so I'm not sure how far that line would go if you well, tried to yeah, prove your masculinity. Well, yeah, was, you know, I had to prove stuff superficially. I didn't have to do it physically. Yeah, there that, you go. That's the difference. But anyhow, so uh, when I transitioned to Scotts Bluff, uh, I had gone to this little fundamental church with my mom once as John, my which was my former name and self, my ugly twin brother. I call him. Um, and met this friend of hers, uh, and they, they were pretty close, and they called each other weekly and stuff like that and had these conversations, and I transitioned. So she had never, it never came up that I was, you know, that who I was, except that all the women knew that I was her son. That's, that's as much as she knew. So about two or three months after I transitioned, then we were in the grocery store and ran into this woman. <laughs> and and mom and her were you know bip, 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 back and forth you know with how two little ladies would get to you know chit chat mm-hmm. just for a brief minute. and finally the woman says who's this and my mom says well that's my daughter joanne she's oh my goodness i knew you had a son named john i didn't know you had a daughter named joanne mom says well it's the same person that i like her better oh my god <laughs> Oh and she God. meant that. Oh, that's adorable. All right, so this woman's face, what did it look like? She was like, oh, okay. Okay. Oh, just, yeah, yeah, all right. Yeah, if mom could handle it, she could handle it. You know, it was yeah. one of those things. Yeah. And uh, and a couple, um, mom, before she died, she was suffering from a congestive heart failure. I had to resuscitate her seven times. Wow. 
Uh, every time she stood up, she'd pass out, and I'd have to bring her back. Now, you were living with her at the time, yeah, right? Yeah, this is here in yeah, Nebraska. And you were, uh, she came to, we were living in Nebraska, and we moved here. The company I got a job with in Lancaster mm-hmm. moved us, paid, paid, paid for the move. And so we, uh, we found a place in, in Lancaster to live together. And so it was great times. We had a lot of fun together. And we'd bake, we'd can, we did everything that a mom and a daughter do. And we just had a blast. So <clears throat> it was still a comfortable place to be. It was with mom. So uh, anyhow, um, for the last, uh, so basically I, I got to enjoy mom's company for about the last 10 years of her life. But the last 15 months she was bedridden because every time she'd try to stand up, she would pass out. So I said, no, Mom, we can't keep doing this. 15 months yeah. in a bed. In a, in a hospital bed, because we had one friend of ours found one for us, and we got it for free. And you could up and down and do all the kind of stuff you do in a hospital bed. You could, I could wear it, because it came out of St. Joe's in Reading. That's where it came from when they were converting that hospital. And uh, so about two or three months before she passed, she said, hi, I'm so glad you're a girl. Oh. And I went, okay, why is that? She said, because if you were giving me this level of care as a boy, people might think it was creepy. <laughs> <laughs> but you had to know mom to understand her sense of humor, and that, yeah. was, that, was, that was, made it fun. So No, that is one of my favorite stories of yours of all time. <laughs> Just that. And, you know, that and with all of our friends that we made in Lancaster, it was, well, my daughter this, my daughter that, Joanne this, Joanne that. She was so proud of me. Oh. And that meant so much. I gave her a book to read called... Uh, um, Oh, my goodness, I can't even think of the name of it now. Um, True Selves. True Selves. And uh, she read it. And uh, she finished it, and she said, Honey, I finished that book. And I went, Oh, okay, what'd you think? She said, Oh, my, my goodness, the stories broke my heart. And I said, Mom, did you stop to think that a lot of that was my story? And she totally lost it. Oh, my goodness. She just fell apart. She said, Oh, my goodness, I never made the connection. But she says, I can't imagine what you had to go through. I'm so blessed. You are. Oh, don't cry. It's well, okay. But you're starting to well. <laughs> I know. It's your fault. You started welling up, and I looked at you. I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> we'll get through this. All <laughs> so, right. <laughs> so anyway, so that was mom. Yeah. Um, we had a really special relationship. And again, she was always my safety place. So yeah. that's that's why that would make so much difference. So <clears throat> after she passed, then I jumped fully into the advocacy role. Um, Got very active with Trans Central PA. You're the former president of Trans Central. Well, and eventually then became, took on the job as president of Trans Central from 2014 to just this last spring. Mm-hmm. Um, You're one of the creators and leaders of the Keystone. No, Conference. I won't say that. I came on board after it was already going. Oh, but, really? Oh, yeah. oh, I thought you were a founding creator. No, 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 no. Jenny yeah. and Christy were the founders. Uh, I came on later. Uh, I participated in every single one of the Keystones, which is coming up to number 12 in this March. Um, but no, I didn't take on an actor role until about three years in. And that's that was my first year. I'm, I'm three yeah. years behind in I, Keystone. I had just started taking on a more active role at the conference when you and I met. And I that, had no idea. Yeah. So when you, I will say, knowing you, when you participate with something, you immediately jump in and take leadership roles and like involve well, yourself I, I, fully. I can't sit by and not do something. Yeah. Um, and it isn't because I'm trying to get on a, some kind of a power trip. It's just that, you know, if I've got something I think that, the, or that somebody thinks I can contribute, I'm not going to say no mm-hmm. because it's important. There's too much work to be done in the, in the community as far as gaining our equity and equality. 
Um, so anyway, yeah, I started with doing the stuff with, with Keystone initially. All I did was coordinate all hotel activities, you know, working with staff and making sure everything took place on time, that the meals were good, that all the setups were done and all that kind of stuff. That was my initial job and then moved on to taking care of the sponsors and advertisers. And then now at the passing of Janine last year, now I'm also now doing the, the keynotes, keynote speakers. And we're definitely going to, on a future podcast, talk about all things Keystone uh, yeah. for 2020. I guess that's your plan, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you will be back on the show. We're going to talk about the keynote speakers you have coming up, some of the okay. exciting things. Can't release any of those yet. We got no. some of them. Some of them are already nailed down, but we can't talk about those yet. Yeah, we'll share that. We'll share that down Okay, the sounds good. So. Um, so some of the advocacy things that you do, uh, I'd like to share so that, and we're, I'd like to talk about your advocacy in detail in a future podcast too okay. uh, but just so people are aware of one how can I get involved how can I volunteer and two all the different ways that you have done it I mean you go into prisons you you travel all over the state you travel all over the country at, at one time in the Commonwealth I did 25,000 miles one year that's incredible <laughs> especially I saw your car <laughs> survived 25,000 yeah, miles but, yeah, but it died years. afterwards yeah I had to replace it but I no, don't know if it died, if it just gave but up. But just to give you a rundown of what I'm doing right now, of course, I'm Executive Director of Trans Advocacy Pennsylvania. I'm co-chair of the Keystone Conference. I'm a commissioner on the Pennsylvania Commission for LGBT Affairs. With LGBT. Yep, Governor Wolf. Governor Wolf appointed me. Yep. I'm also on a, what's known as the uh, Governor's uh, LGBT Work Group, which there are several of us stakeholders that are in a room with all the policy directors from all the different departments of government. I'm on the Pence, uh, I'm on the President's Commission for Gender and Sexual Diversity at Millersville University. I'm a consultant to the Department of Corrections on transgender issues. And through TransCentral, we've been doing a online pod, or not a podcast, but a video conference with inmates for, we're in our fourth year of doing that. Um, and let's see what else. I'm on the Penn Central United Church of Christ Open and Affirming Ministry Team, which means I get to work with churches. Mm-hmm. to help them try to chart their way to open and affirming to, in other words, allowing LGBT people to be a part, active part of their church uh, community of faith. Uh, let's see, what else do I do? That's enough for now. I think that's good. I think we're going to need about <laughs> 10 podcasts to really share everything no, I, that the, you're involved in. I think in. That that's good enough. For, there'll be some of those we can talk about, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's incredible your entire story, the journeys that you have taken. You've literally been around the world. And, uh, well, I've been a few places. Yeah, yeah. you've lived in Greece. Yeah, you've lived in Greece for <laughs> you've three lived years. Lived in Thailand. I, yeah, yeah. I've lived in Thailand for a year. Yeah. and I speak Greek and I speak Thai. But that you you found your way back home. You found your way back to your heart. Yeah. You found your way back to yeah. God. Yeah. And home with and, mom. And again, I can't say it enough. Um, I'm able to do what I do. I'm empowered to do what I do because of how God empowers me. Um, there's a uh, story that comes out of the book of John in the Bible. Uh, it's about the first couple of verses in, in the book of John. And Jesus is healed a blind man who was blind from birth. And the disciples ask him, well, who sinned? The parents or the man that he was born blind from birth? And Jesus says, no one sinned. This happened that God might be glorified. And I, look, I take that to mean I'm trans because God had a greater intent for me, and that is to tell people that I can be trans and I can be an active lover of Christ and a lover of God uh, at the same time and be, receive the love back. 
That's beautiful. So, um, you know, I, uh, I, again, I wouldn't even be sitting in this chair if it wasn't for how I'm empowered. So there's a, a couple of things I'd like to ask you before we end okay. our interview. Uh, one, if you had one piece of advice that you wish you had received, something you wish somebody had told you along the way that you would like to share with somebody else. Well, obviously, don't let, and I, and I do this all the time now with, with the stuff I do, don't let somebody convince you that God doesn't love you because you're LGBTQ, because mm -hmm. that's a crock of beans. You know, God loves us no matter what. It's unconditional. He created us, and he loves us unconditionally. If there's a church that's messing with you, that's screwing with you, that's, that's telling you you're no good or you're broken, leave that place and go find one that will accept you for who you are because there are plenty of them out there. Yeah. In Lancaster County, granted we're in York County, now I can't speak for York County, but in Lancaster County we have over 20 churches that accept LGBT people. LGBTQIA plus 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 plus. How would somebody find that? Is there one resource they could go to that's like a, a well, one good one would be going through Embrace Lancaster. It's an organization devoted to helping churches, you know, that are, that are accepting of LGBT. Uh, the other thing is, is if you see a church that looks interesting, look at their website and see what their values are. Uh, if it says they're open affirming or reconciling or welcoming or whatever. Read deeply, and if they're saying, regardless of where you are in life's journey, you're welcome here. Don't buy into that. All are welcome, because that doesn't work. Yeah. Because that sign goes with all are welcome as long as you look like us and act like us. So dig a little deeper. But there's a place where, where you can have a, be a person of faith and be LGBTQ, because God doesn't judge that. That's wonderful. And I can... I could get into all kind of biblical stuff and give you support, but I'm not going to do that here. <laughs> Another um, podcast. Maybe do it. <laughs> yeah. How many are we going to do? Um, um, it sounds about like 15. Oh, no, but, my goodness. Yeah. You're going to get tired of hearing me. No, it'll, it'll, it'll be like Manic Monday with Joanne. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah. you, you asked me about what kind of advice. Number, That's probably as, as much as anything. For kids that are looking at transition, the impetuous nature of youth means I want to jump into it right now. And what I tell kids when I talk to them, like when I say kids, I mean, you know, like teenagers or, you know, uh, <coughs> Gen Zs, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So go get an education. Yeah. Transition is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Transition never ends. You're always transitioning from one part of your life to another. <coughs> so don't rush it. Get your education. If you can do it and transition at the same time, okay, fine. But... Make sure you get something that's going to qualify you for decent employment later in life. I mean, we face enough pressures in the trans community. I mean, the unemployment rate is 19%. Currently in the U.S., it's like three point something. If you're black and trans, it's, excess, it's in excess of 25%. So get something that you can use. That isn't necessarily going to guarantee you're going to be hired, but at least you're not going to be a slave to fast food for the rest of your life because the chances are if you have a, more, a greater education, you can move yourself into a different place. So get an education, um, but be patient. Don't, you don't have to transition on day one, yeah. okay? And it doesn't happen like that for anybody on day one. No, because there's four stages to transition. There's social transition where you start living on a th as authentically as you can. There's, med there's a, a medical transition where you start the, the hormone replacement therapy, therapy to either start masculinizing or feminizing. There's legal transition, which means you start getting all your documentation in order. And then there's surgical transition where you go through the surgical procedures to make yourself how you perceive yourself.
So there's four p places. You can't jump from here to there. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like you got to go through all these steps to get to here. But these kids want to go, boom, I want to jump to the end point. No, you can't do it. It doesn't work that way. And take your time. It's not about it's not about arrival. It's about the journey. I mean, I'm still learning more about who I am as a trans person every day. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and I won't go into some of it, but that's okay. <laughs> some of it's very personal. That's okay. Uh, yeah. And uh, but you know, I'm I'm still learning what it means to be me. I'm still learning what it means to be a female in the world. Um, I'm still learning how to navigate in toxic masculine places how to deal with people that are toxic masculine people, you know, um, and how just to relate to my girlfriends. So it's a, it's, it's a total journey process, and it's not something you gain overnight. Um, when I was getting ready to transition, I said, okay, here's what I want. I really don't know how to be a girl because I didn't have a puberty, mm -hmm. at least not that kind of a puberty, not the kind like you went through. Yeah. So I have to learn some things. So what I decided to do is I was going to go to one. This was in Salt Lake City. I'm just going to sit in the mall and watch women. Not because I'm stalking or doing anything cruel, you know, creepy. But I just want to watch how they function in a public setting. And I learned my lessons about how to function just in a public setting. How you walk in a mall, how you go do this, how you make this happen, you know, this kind of thing. Um, men go, like, when they're in a mall, they go like a, if they're going to shop, buy something at Penny's, they're on a rope. Yeah. It's destination-based. It's destination-based. Destination Females are still destination-based, but there's a little bit of a side journey to it as well yeah. because we'll stop and look in a window if something fascinates us. Guys don't. They go straight through. Um, and I, the other thing I've learned, too, is that for, for women, or as a woman, I don't have to buy. Part of the joy of being a woman is just shopping. <laughs> you know, just looking at stuff because mm -hmm. you get ideas about different kind of things rather than necessarily acquiring different things. So it's it's about taking in things all around you as much as it is about acquiring something. And so I've learned to do that too. And that's what I learned from watching women. That's amazing. Yeah. So I guess those things are a couple of things I would tell, but be patient. You know, you got, it's a long, you got a long life ahead of you. Yeah. Try to enjoy every moment. You try to rush through it. There's going to be parts of it you're going to miss. You know. If there's the the last thing I'd like to ask you, mm -hmm. is because you shared that you had attempted suicide four times and you proudly wear your semicolon tattoo. Mm -hmm. uh, if somebody has those thoughts, what do they do? Where do they go? Who do there's they lots to? of suicide hotlines. But probably the, the greatest reason that most people consider it is because going through what we go through feels so helpless. You feel like, we, I can't get through this. Well, the thing, the thing that gave me strength was this, and that is helping figure out who I was and, get, and gaining my identity was knowing about Christine Jorgensen. And then every other person that's walked that path of transition since has made the path just a little bit wider. And so as the more of us that are on that journey, the path widens and widens and widens. And if, you, and if you depart the journey, you're breaking faith with your sisters and brothers that are coming up behind you because we need to pay it forward where we can, and that is to, to help others chart the, same, chart the way forward. So there's a job we have to do. Uh, it's not about being selfish. It's not about just being about part of yourself. It's about 
accepting the road that we're on, realizing there's somebody coming behind me. And so I want to live my best life for that person that's coming behind me. And I think that's the obligation we have for each other because the path's widening. It narrowed a little bit this last couple of years, and we won't go into that because that's politics. But nonetheless, the, the path has widened principally since, uh, since I decided to transition. Even, even in this last 20 years, it's widened so much. Yeah, and you've been a huge part of that. No, just... I don't say that. No, I won't go that far. I've, I've, I've had a small part in it, a small part, very small part. I would say that if you made a difference to just one person, yeah. that's enough. And that's really, and that's really and what... And you have touched thousands. Yeah, well, I don't know about that. But my obje- my, I go by the starfish theory, and I've told you that before. Um, there was a little boy on the beach, and a lot of people heard the story. He picks up a starfish, and he throws it in the ocean, and this little man says, What are you doing, honey? He says, I'm saving starfish. He said, But look, he says, there's all these starfish up and down the beach. You can't save them all. He says, No, but I can save that one. Well, and that's my, um, my operating theory. If I can help one life or change one mind in the course of a day, I've done something pretty decent. Well, I know you have made a difference being on here today and sharing your story. I hope. I cannot thank you enough for oh, taking this pleasure. time and for sharing so much about your life and journey. And It was kind of discombobulated because normally when I'm doing this, I just kind of go <laughs> straight through it, you know. <laughs> yeah. But it's been more of a conversation and it has been a lecture, so that's kind of been a little bit disjointed. But hopefully the story just got out. I think the general just got out there just okay. fine. And okay. you had some, some amazing things that you have lived in your life. And honestly, I, th- I think you're the dream. I think there's a lot of people, even who aren't trans, who are going to hear the story of you and your mom and just that acceptance that we just want don't from over, our mothers. Just, just don't ever sell my greatness, because okay? <laughs> it's not. I promise you. Yeah, we'll just sell it a little bit with each podcast yeah. that you're on, since you're going to yeah. be on here about every week talking. Well, again, about let it. me do one thing importantly, and that is, I got to give him the glory for everything I do. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I, I love you. I love you too. Thank you. And I'm proud that you adopted me as your grandma. I'm so proud to be your granddaughter. Thank you for taking me on. I love you. I love you, and I will talk to you soon on our next podcast. Or be- for... if not before. That sounds good. Oh, yeah. All right, and signing off. Thanks so much for being on today, Joanne Carroll. And I definitely recommend that you visit with this amazing person, if nowhere else, at least at the Keystone Conference coming up in March 2020. So thank you and have a great afternoon. You too, babe. If you are having suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8275.